It is time for Plan B with Rebecca Davis. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, John. Jacob Zuma, is he going to jail? I don't know, but there's a few other things I wanted to say. One is that we must keep our wits about us as a nation. For instance, it's noticeable that one of Zuma's children, uh, that is Duduzane's twin, uh, her name escapes me at the moment. Duduzile, yes, I think it's Duduzile, has been tweeting videos that she claims are mass gatherings of people mobilizing in support of Zuma. These are definitely old videos. There's absolutely no doubt about them. They could be from, I don't even know when, certainly before he was ousted as president, I reckon. There's not a mask in sight, and I really think that is one of the best ways to tell. I mean, I know that... Unfortunately, many of the people who will be attending Zuma gatherings will not be wearing masks. But if you cannot see a single piece of COVID-19 paraphernalia in the frame, then I think there is a fair bet that this is old footage. But I also, so I wanted to say that, John, because, you know, when you look at social media, Twitter, you can get the sense of a country on the edge, you know, that people are flooding to KZN in support of Jacob Zuma, that if indeed he is dragged to court, that this is the thing that will finally plunge South Africa into chaos. I think that is absolutely not the case at all. And there's been very little evidence thus far of a mass mobilization. And as always, John, I think the media has a, a role to play in fermenting what mobilization that is. I mean, we see broadcasters just hanging around in Canada desperate for someone who looks like they're coming out to support Jacob Zuma. But what is not fake news, John, is the level of support Jacob Zuma has in KwaZulu-Natal. And, you know, this is something that I witnessed firsthand covering the 2019 elections in that province, where I would go from rally to rally in rural areas often and repeatedly see President-to-be Cyril Ramaphosa receiving a very lukewarm response and Jacob Zuma coming out and just being greeted with absolute adulation. There is no doubt that KwaZulu-Natal is absolutely as power-based, that there are many, many thousands of supporters there to whom corruption, to whom lack of respect for the courts mean relatively little, for whom he is still a son of the soil and a hero. And I do think that if those people are somehow mobilized and brought into a situation, a kind of standoff, then that has the making of a dangerous situation. What I see on Twitter thus far doesn't doesn't lead me to believe that, that that is a situation in the making yet. Yeah, it's something that I'm... I, I, we, we'll only know once it happens, you know, once he um, arrives at the gates of Nkandla and says to the people, however many of them are gathered outside, uh, let the Red Sea part because I'm going to jail now. Uh, I, th- I think that's more likely than the police having to go in and fetch him, but we can't be sure, and we probably won't be sure until fairly late on Monday, because if he is going to jail, he's probably going to drag out the willy-won't-he until the very last possible moment. That's right. And in the interim, we're going to see an awful lot of dirt slung at the judges involved. I've already seen all sorts of allegations now being directed at not just Judge Susie Kampepe, but also her relatives. Ferial Hafferty has a great piece on the Daily Maverick at the moment, pointing out the gendered element of the Zuma Foundation's response, how their immediate go-to is to accuse Judge Kampepe of being emotional, when indeed it's the Zuma supporters, if anyone is emotional. Also noteworthy, John, we've discussed this before, that we keep seeing the same old figures as spokespeople for the Zuma support, and that is Zwanele Mani, 
Carl Niehaus. Is that about it? I mean, these literally are the only names. Mzwandile Masina has been quieter than he usually is on these matters, so I don't know whether that's him realizing that if he wants his bread to continue to have butter on it, he needs to look in the direction of the dairy of Suramaposa. That's right, and I think there will be a fair amount of expedience going on. But if this, is, if this is the real test, I suppose, of the radical economic transformation faction even more than the ace contingent because it is Zuma who's the ultimate figurehead and if he goes off to jail without there being a huge hue and cry without there being a kind of mass outrage then I think it is safe to say that that faction is largely imaginary and that will be an interesting test John I'm really looking forward to seeing what does happen myself too Uh, I was reading the New York Times online earlier today Rebecca hundreds of deaths in British Columbia linked to a heat wave that has roasted parts of Western Canada breaking heat records three days in a row Um, 486 deaths reported over six days while typically 165 would have been reported in that time so uh, you know 35 235 over 300 probably down to to the heat uh, parts of washington state oregon have been battered by extreme heat several days in a row the seven warmest years in the history of accurate temperature record keeping have been the last seven years and 19 of the 20 warmest years have occurred since 2000 and there are still people who say that global warming is not real i just don't understand how anyone can look at what's happening currently and not see absolute climate chaos John, 49.6 degrees Celsius in Canada. I mean, the the hottest temperature ever recorded in a town in British Columbia, almost 50 degrees. I mean, we very rarely hit those temperatures here, even in places like, I don't know, Springbok or Upington or the most extreme heat places here. And that is in Canada. In Portland, Oregon, there are pictures circulating showing infrastructure literally melting. And then on the other the other hand, you know, a friend in Costa Rica informs me I have not checked this and I've not been able to verify it, but temperatures there hitting historic lows, minus zero. What I'm seeing is, you know, this is really a, a climate all over the show, a climate in chaos. And if there are still listeners who are unconvinced by the idea that the global climate is changing, I really urge you to turn on your TV, just go on the Internet and see what is happening, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, because it really is alarming. How, well, how much do you work from home these days? Quite a lot still, Rebecca. So um, Continuously. Yeah, so disconnect for you is... Is, is not really an option? Well, I suppose it is. You, Rebecca says my working hours are from 7 in the morning until 8 o'clock at night. After that, I disconnect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a good one. So this is a situation for many of us that the work-from-home situation that the pandemic has brought in a way is lovely. There's many elements of it we all enjoy, working in pajamas. But it it has inevitably blurred the boundaries between work and life. And researchers have now concluded that since the onset of the pandemic, the average workday has extended by 48 minutes, so almost an hour. And I think that's actually quite uh, a generous on the low side estimate. I think many of us are working a lot harder and longer than that. And what is the answer? Well, we've discussed this before a few years ago, John, that laws are already in place in France, Italy and Spain. And now British unions are calling for it too, for government intervention to regulate what they call the right to disconnect. Unions are asking for labor laws to restrict 
the ability of your boss to send you an email after hours or the expectation that you should respond to a message from a colleague at night or respond to an email at the weekend. Because otherwise they suggest there is just this inexorable flow whereby nothing's quite work and nothing's quite relaxation. It's just all a mishmash. That's certainly where I am at the moment, where I'm never fully turned off, but then I'm very rarely 100% focused either, except in times of strict deadline. It's all just kind of mushed up, and I'm not sure that's a very healthy way to work. I'm sure it's not a very healthy way to work. I mean, I... I reply to my last email on my desktop computer, usually around half past nine, and then I go off to bed with a book. But before I fall asleep and turn off the light, I check my mobile phone just to see if there is another email which I can respond to before I switch off the light. And it is, without a doubt, unhealthy at an emotional, psychological, intellectual and physical level. But I can't stop myself. We are, we've become hardwired into this way of working. We have, and it's largely the technology that we're working with, you know, the urgency of these apps, the red notification, etc. And part of it, John, I'm sure, is working in the media where we often do have breaking news, where there is literally good reason for you sometimes to respond to things that are happening in the moment. But I do feel that the rest of it is just a kind of sea change in the way we as a society view work. And for white-collar workers, certainly, as we say, not particularly healthy. So perhaps we need to get onto the Department of Labor, John, and ask them to... Make it a crime, a crime for people to keep sending us emails late at night. And and thank you for sending your email to me today at nine minutes past noon. Thank you for that. So do tell us your favorite story of the week. John, I realized when I was trying out the story on my wife that it might require a preparatory explanation, and that is about the game of Tiddlywinks which I thought was widely known, but perhaps it is not. Uh, Could you attempt an explanation of tiddlywinks for any listeners who might not be familiar with it? No, you've had advance warning, so you will have prepared. (laughs) For me to do it, it is going to be really nasty. All right. Tiddlywinks effectively, I mean, it sounds like a drinking game, but it's not. It's sort of a colonial British children's game where you have to flick a disc into a pot. I mean, I think that is it in its essence. Tiddlywinks, it is called. A woman in Christchurch in New Zealand, Mary McCarthy, has had sinus pain for years and years. And then she went to have a COVID-19 test performed by nasal swab. Now, many of us have had this, and you you can attest, John, I think, if you've had one, to exactly how disgusting and discomforting that sensation is of the earbud going down your nose hole. But for Mary McCarthy, it was incredibly painful, causing additional congestion and problems until she went finally to a specialist and discovered that the reason for all her nasal problems was that she had had a tiddlywink piece up her nose for 37 years. (laughs) (laughs) She actually remembered vaguely when she was called to explain this. She had a vague memory of inhaling it as an eight-year-old, wondering where it had gone and then being sort of too scared to say anything to her parents, as one of them is. John, I think the reason this story tickles me so is because Miles, our 19-month-old, has unfortunately entered the phase of his life where he has started inserting anything he can find into his nasal orifice. At the moment, it's green beans, so you take your eye off him for a second and suddenly there's a bean sticking out of his nose. It's comical, but also worrying. 
thought that in 37 years we might be extracting a legume from Miles' <laughs> nose. Really does make me laugh. <laughs> Rebecca Davis, thank you very much for making me and I'm sure other people laugh as well.